Welcome to another episode of Mechanical Freak Presents. In this episode, we're going to be talking with friend of the show, Justin Roll, about the 1944 DNC, as well as uh, his family's relation to it, which is interesting. Now, before we get into that, there is some uh, background to the 1944 Democratic National Convention that we need to go through. In 1944, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was going for his fourth term in office. He was wildly popular in the country and also in incredibly ill health. He was going to need a running mate who would most likely be running the country. During the 1940 election, the election prior, Roosevelt chose to make Henry Wallace his vice president. Wallace represented faith in Roosevelt's New Deal, a cementing of the new labor reforms that had made union organizing legal for the first time in the country, and the growing resolve to fight fascism abroad. With Wallace on board, FDR secured the support of labor and the invaluable CIO organizing apparatus, which helped campaign for him. Roosevelt would cement this support in his 1941 State of the Union when he declared that all people had a right to four freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from fear, and freedom from want. Freedom from want terrified the business community as it suggested that there should be a guaranteed standard of living for workers. Further, Wallace was supporting guaranteed full employment of the workforce, a proposition that had the potential to raise wages and promote unions. Combined with the support for friendly relations with the Soviet Union, Wallace became a non-starter for business. Now, American capitalists had a tense relationship with the New Deal. Some saw it as a necessary but extremely temporary bargain to get out of the Great Depression without setting off a working-class revolution. But most hated the New Deal. Some labeled it a Jewish plot. Most labeled it socialist and or communist. Efforts at repealing New Deal programs coexisted with the creation of each individual, individual program itself. Still, with the union movement growing in strength and with FDR's stunning popularity, Roosevelt was able to push through the first inklings of social democracy in the United States. The Temporary National Economic Committee was founded in 1938 to examine concentrations of economic power and report to Congress. During the ramp-up to war in 1940, the TNEC reported that, quote, Speaking bluntly, the government and the public are over the barrel when it comes to dealing with business in the time of war. The experience of World War I, now apparently being repeated, indicates that business will use this control, the planned economy being set up in anticipation of war, only if it is paid properly. In effect, this is blackmail. The TNEC was defunded by Congress shortly after issuing this report, but business finally had the lever with which it could attack the New Deal. During all of 1941 and for months after war was declared in December, business was slow to convert to war production, with many industries flatly refusing. They would only have the war if it was on their terms. As a result of this production slowdown, Roosevelt began firing new dealers from his staff and replacing them with reps from industry and Wall Street. For example, Edward Stettness, chairman of the board of U.S. Steel and VP of General Motors, became Secretary of State. 
Nelson Rockefeller, inheritor of Standard Oil and Chase Bank, left his position as head of Creole Petroleum Corporation, which was Standard Oil's operation in Venezuela, to take a job in the State Department managing relations with Latin America. Bernard Baruch, a Wall Street millionaire and primary funder of the Daughters of the Confederacy, was made special advisor to the Office of War Mobilization, where he granted war contracts. Lewis Douglas, a gold bug and deficit hawk who had served as president and VP of multiple large corporations and had clashed with Roosevelt on New Deal spending, was given the job of deputy administrator of of the War Shipping Administration, where he handed out lucrative war contracts. And hundreds more from Wall Street and big business were brought in to fill out positions in the new war bureaucracy. A report in June from 1942 from a Senate committee fronted by Harry Truman politely suggested that the connections that these businessmen have with the companies and contracts that they were supposed to be overseeing created slowdowns in corruption and war manufacturing. The truth was, of course, much worse. Not only were corporations raking in mass profits at home while wages were frozen, many of the country's biggest corporations were actively working with, and some even directing, subsidiaries in Nazi Germany. IBM famously sold the punch card system that made the Holocaust possible. Both Ford and GM maintained subsidiary plants in Germany, making war material. Both companies were later paid a settlement for damage done to their German facilities by Allied bombers. General Electric even honored an agreement it had made with German Krupp to keep tungsten carbide, a critical material for war production, off the American market, creating massive production bottlenecks in the U.S. And of course, there was the invaluable money and resources that the Rockefellers and Harrimans poured into the field of German race science. In the election year of 1944, Roosevelt's victory looked likely, though he had a stronger opponent in Thomas Dewey and his pervy mustache. Many histories frame it that the public had grown tired of New Deal politics, but this isn't necessarily true. It is true that FDR had lost a lot of political capital in Congress, particularly in the Senate, but the public still loved him. The New Deal was liberal democracy's response to capitalism in crisis, but with the war nearing an end, capitalism was emboldened enough to react against it. And although the corporate infiltration of the Roosevelt government had ensured that war production would be on their terms, many capitalists feared what, a, what an American-Soviet-allied post-war order might look like. In his 1944 State of the Union address, FDR did not allay those fears. He proposed an economic bill of rights for Americans, which guaranteed every American, regardless of station, race, or creed, a right to employment and a living wage, food, clothing, and leisure, housing, medical care, social security, education, and freedom from unfair competition and monopolies. Universally, the capitalist class considered these rights completely unacceptable. Roosevelt was inhaling health. Many knew he would likely not make it through another term, and the vice president would be charged with determining the post-war order. Would it be a world of universal access to medical care, education, and the necessities of life? Or would it be, to quote Engel's description of capitalism, a continuation of the war of each against all? Now let's go to our interview with Justin Roll. The donkey is tired and thin. The elephant thinks he'll move in. 
they yell and they fuss, but they ain't fooling us. Cause their brothers ride under the skin. It's the same, same merry-go-round. Which one will you ride this year? The donkey and elephant bob up and down on the same merry-go-round. The elephant comes from the north. Donkey may come from the south. All right. So welcome back. That song you guys just heard was uh, Ride the Merry-Go-Round, which was a campaign song for uh, one of the people we're going to talk about, one of the characters of our story today, Henry Wallace and his 1948 presidential campaign. And in order to talk about that, I have a special guest here, uh, Justin Roll, who is an unemployed tech worker vice chair of the Seattle DSA and great grandson of one of the players in our story, St. Louis Democratic Party boss, Bob Hannigan, and most importantly, friend of the podcast. That is true. How's it going? (laughs) I was hoping that intro song was going to be the Billy Joel song, uh, We Didn't Start the Fire, but I didn't advocate for that hard enough. Uh, damn, I had totally forgotten that we had talked about that, and I am going to find a pen and make a note. That will be the outro song. Hell yeah. <laughs> well, how are you doing, Justin? Uh, pretty good. You know, uh, on this uh, current day, it's a Monday. I maybe shouldn't say what day we're recording this, but um, the smoke has let up. Uh, I've been able to go outside after feeling like a sausage all week staying indoors so happy about that yeah yeah i mean it's uh i was out of town in eastern washington over the weekend and when i came back i could see the sky again and now i can't but for un not smoke related reasons but because it's just a wonderful cloudy seattle day where it's clearly just gonna rain all day yep um but yeah well justin i wanted to begin this story right because we're going to talk about the 1944 democratic national convention right which essentially uh you know crowns truman as uh fdr's successor and i wanted to begin it with a little a little story from my childhood because i can't help but understand things through the relations the relations of events that happened to me personally that then i have to retell people but uh when I was a kid in high school, uh, freshman year, I think it was, in our history class, we had to write a, you know, our final thing for the six weeks period was we had to write a paper about who we thought the best American president was in the 20th century. And I initially was, of course, going to say FDR, as every child would, uh, okay. when your history teacher is obsessed with World War II in the 1930s. And... But I, I had this thought as a kid, I was, I, was, I was doing my gamesmanship. I was like, everybody's going to pick FDR. If I write an essay about FDR, it'll be judged against all those essays, right? And then it could be bad because I'm not a good writer. Yep. So I decided to zig when everybody zagged. And I wrote my essay that the best president of the 20th century was Harry Truman. And <laughs> I don't pick. Yeah, and I don't remember what I wrote in it. I have I you know, it was one of those things. I'm sure I wrote it over a, a course of a very harried 30 minutes um, before just, you know, giving up and going and doing something else. Um, but I would give almost any amount of money to read that essay today. <laughs> yeah, you should find the teacher if the teacher still has it or if it's in a bin somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> I um 
I, you know, a, a coded to that story. So I actually ran into that history teacher years later when I was uh, maybe a senior in college. I was back in San Antonio and I ran into that teacher at the bank and he asked what I was doing. And that year in college, I had uh, done some like substituting for middle school students. And I told him, oh, you know, I, I've, I've been working as a substitute teacher a little bit uh, here and there, and I'm finishing off at college. And he just started laughing, and he just goes, you as a teacher? <laughs> yeah. I read that fucking Truman essay. It sucked. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he just kind of laughed, and I was like, well, that's a motive and a real, real endorsement. Thank you. <laughs> but, I, yeah, I don't know about your history books, but I remember in mine, they definitely kind of, like, glorified Truman as, you know, one lone man like making all these decisions in the midst of this great war that was definitely a thing yeah well it's the usual american bullshit of uh you know he was a a straight shooter uh you know who who told it as it is and 50 other dumb cliches you know uh that seem like really important and interesting when you're 15 and you're supposed to grow out of but uh you know, John McCain's continual mythology proves that none of us ever grew out of it, apparently. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> even even in this, uh, the McCullough, like, big biography on Truman, which won the Pulitzer Prize. I mean, who cares? But, you know, a lot, a lot of people have read it. But he definitely has, like, one line in there that's basically, like, you know, all these decisions in a short amount of time made by a few great men, history hinged on that. Even in that, it's like that narrative is alive. So, Yeah, yeah. And I mean, a little foreshadowing. All You know, a lot of things happen in the Truman administration, and they're almost exclusively bad. So, yeah. you know, it's like making awful choices over and over again. Yeah. Uh, what a feat. Well, let's, let's really jump into our story. And I thought, you know... Uh, for, for old timers like us, of course, we remember guys like Henry Wallace like it was yesterday. But, you know, for our average podcast listener who's 12 years old, uh, they probably don't remember some of these characters. So I thought maybe we, we got to run through exactly yeah. like who Henry Wallace and Harry Truman were. Um, so Henry Wallace, you know, uh, began his life as a journalist and a farmer. And uh, what, what, what was his deal, Justin? Um, so his dad was secretary of agriculture at one point, like he's in kind of this like famous farming, uh, family. Like they have this like farmer's journal, uh, what is it called? It's like the Wallace something like the Wallace register or something. Look it up. Um, (laughs) um, I'm sure it's still in print, but yeah, famous, famous farming families. Um, you know, the, uh, yeah, he was made Secretary of Agriculture in 1932. He's kind of like somewhat of a populist. Um, mm-hmm. You know, definitely like pro-labor. Um, not, you know, he doesn't really have, because he wasn't really an elected, you know, representative. There's not like much like history of like voting to back it up. Um, mm-hmm. but he definitely gave a lot of nice speeches. He's got that going for him. Um, and in the administration, I guess he did um, write some policy uh, to help farmers. Um, you might know a little bit more about this. but Yeah, I mean, his like, you know, as Secretary of Agriculture, you know, in 32, for those who uh, maybe were not forced to watch the uh, old, like cheap documentaries that are made just for high schools, 
there was a giant dust bowl that had been created across of most of the American breadbasket. And, you know, you get all these great videos of uh, just the whole cloud, like, turning black or whatever, you know. The beginning of um, uh, The Wizard of Oz for, you know, people, I guess, need a visual. And that whole dust bowl effect was caused largely by agricultural practices, right? You know, it was, there were drought years and dry years that, you know, impacted it, but it was a, a mixture of climate and sort of land use policy, uh, hard to relate to today, uh, that then blew up in everybody's faces. And Henry Wallace's big claim to fame after 32 is he basically creates a federal land use policy where he comes in, he's like, look, you can't like, you know, you have to leave some of your fields fallow so they don't just turn into shit, right? So the soil doesn't just turn into shit, right? And uh, sort of like revolutionizes American farming in the 30s, uh, which is, yeah, I mean, you know, his family was this agricultural, you know, family or whatever. I'm seeing that apparently it was called the Wallace's Farm Journal. The Wallace's Wall- Farm Journal, okay. Yeah, and apparently it has something to do with cryptids if you search it real quick. I'm not going to look Ooh. into that in any way, but... <laughs> I think that's maybe it still exists. Cryptid mag, I don't know, but yeah. Um, so in the 30s, he becomes this, you know, important figure because you know the United States is still, you know, has a huge agricultural industry, and uh, Wallace is sort of saving it in more ways than one. Like he's, you know, he's changing the land practices, but he's also uh, creating the farm subsidies that have uh, mutated to what we have today. Right? And. Farmers were still in the New Deal coalition. Uh, yeah. Yeah, this was before the Southern strategy and all that shit. Yeah, yeah. And in uh, one of the things, too, that's kind of interesting about Wallace is, you know, while he's overseeing the Agricultural Adjustment Administration, right, which is the New Deal program for farmers, uh, one of the things he's doing is actually, like, making life a little easier on sharecroppers and things like that, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, so breaking some of the almost feudal relations that agriculture had in this country, um, which is all to say that by, you know, 1940, right? He's a pretty popular guy. <laughs> he's, he's not nobody. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, there's a reason uh, FDR chose him as his VP. I mean, partly, you know, in the biographies, People say that like FDR was just like charms, like Wallace was so smart and FDR just liked him. But there, there is a little more to it than that. Um, like it was strategic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Wallace is very popular. He's popular, popular with labor, right? And, you know, FDR yep. needs, uh, you know, the union apparatus. Uh, something that the Democratic Party used to have was this alliance with labor where they could use the apparatus of the union to actually do campaigning and stuff like that for yeah. them to work as like an adjunct. And FDR is the first one to really do this, right, and take advantage of it. And having a guy who's pro-labor and that labor loves, like Wallace, behind you, not the worst, not the worst thing in the world, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, and like what you were saying, like the CIO pack was like pretty powerful back then, and that'll come into play, you know, when all the convention stuff goes down. Yeah, and uh, and Wallace, I mean, it, it, he, I think the, and we'll probably be guilty of this later in the episode ourselves, but the the analog that people like to give it today, right, is that you know Henry Wallace as you know Bernie Sanders or whatever, you know Bernie Sanders is Henry Wallace today or whatever, but uh, that's really not like a good comparison because Henry Wallace was 
way by today's standards to the left of Bernie Sanders in a lot of things. Um, sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, during, you know, the uh, first administration he had or the only, you know, administration he had with Roosevelt, right, as VP, uh, Henry Luce, who was the head of the Time Life Empire, had written this essay called The American Century that essentially was basically saying, you know, after this war is over, you know, really, really looking ahead here, after this war is over, uh, we should make sure that the world is like recreated along the lines of an American imperium. And, you know, Wallace responds with these public speeches that he starts giving called The Century of the Common Man. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and you know, I have some, I have some little like uh, clips from it here to give people an idea, and just try to imagine a politician today giving a speech like this. So he says that we are in a fight, a fight between the slave world and a free world. Just as in the United States in 1862, we cannot remain half slave and half free. So in 1942, the world must make its decision for a complete victory, one way or the other. And he goes on. Men and women cannot be really free until they have plenty to eat and time and ability to read and think and talk things over. No nation will have the God-given right to exploit other nations, and there must be neither military military nor economic imperialism. Yeah, uh, that works out. Yeah, exactly. He talks about how we're on a 150-year march for freedom, and then he gives the... the uh, list of all the big bullet points of this march for human freedom uh he begins with the american revolution as you might expect right uh goes to the french revolution i don't think that too many american politicians would want to side with the french revolution today uh the bolivarian revolutions uh i don't know that any american politicians would know what the bolivarian revolutions of latin america were uh the german revolution of 1848 important for us communists and the Russian Revolution is what he ends up as the great march towards freedom, right? And, um, you know, and he calls it a people's revolution on the march, right? And this is, uh, it, it's it's an astounding speech. Uh, and it's just impossible to imagine any politician of any stripe giving this today, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I know he was also uh, accused of, communism as were like a lot of new dealers uh you know in the fdr administration but uh yeah and i mean and interestingly for a lot of new dealers in the fdr administration it was uh absolutely true yeah uh, in wallace's case it really wasn't like he was this sort of um this this character that came out of like the 1890s populist movement and stuff of like the agrarian, you know, populist, you know, who believes in bringing down the uh, big banks and spreading the money out. And things yeah. Like that. I mean, it, it was, you know, doesn't understand the point of going to war all over the world, you know, all these kind of things. Uh, a real interesting, you know, an interesting character, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and definitely like what you were saying, like there, like if you look up um some of the New Deal, you know, cabinet people, such as um, I think it was Leland Olds, who's mm-hmm. Secretary of Energy or Utilities or something like that. Um, he definitely had ties to the Communist Party in America, and uh, it was used later on by like LBJ in the Senate to run him out of there. Um, yeah. Similar things happened to a bunch of other New Dealers. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, Victor Perlow is an economist who wrote uh, the book that I still will hand people today. Uh, he wrote it in the 1990s called The Economics of Racism, which is, I think, a fucking amazing book. Uh was a new dealer in the Roosevelt cabinet who uh, was absolutely a member of the, of the communist party. But uh, there, there was, there was more than a few, right? Yeah. Um, so that is Henry Wallace, right? And he's chosen by Roosevelt in 1940 because he's wildly popular. He's going to help, you know, mobilize the uh, labor base. And by being vice president, it just sort of, adds to his popularity right because more people are seeing him he's going out he's giving speeches for roosevelt etc yeah he's from iowa he's from you know the cornfields people like that they play the iowa corn theme however that goes yeah yeah the was it iowa where the tall corn grows yes his theme song this is back when vice presidents had theme songs how fucking awesome was that yeah well you know uh trump has a november rain we shouldn't let him steal that from us because that is a fantastic song but yeah i I will never sign over any of guns and roses catalog to donald trump (laughs) but (laughs) it's too important this is a hill i will die on Uh, but yeah i mean um yeah it's really interesting uh you know, he's going around, he, yeah, he, he, you know, he has this theme song, right? He's, he's a very popular character, which kind of brings us to a person who's a little bit of his opposite, right? Which is Harry Truman, who we all know and love as the president. I wrote a report on in my freshman year or my Your freshman year of high president. school, my favorite president, uh, the, not my favorite. Cause that would imply, uh, you know, some, you know, that this is just my opinion. No, the greatest president. <laughs> <laughs> thus implying objective fact um so harry true what's 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 what was truman's deal what was his uh upbringing uh yeah that's that's a good question um so he grew up in uh missouri uh in a farming family um he was bullied as a child he had glasses he was short uh he was kind of un memorable i think that's the rap on him um he liked to (laughs) read a lot but wasn't you know especially like good at school or anything like that totally fine um he did serve in uh world war one um i think he was in charge of a battalion i don't know exactly the military you know terminology but uh you know he went to france he went through europe uh he you know saw action during the war um and that would, you know, his wartime record would help him uh, politically later on. And mm-hmm. so, you know, eventually, like, you'll see other politicians. I mean, okay, especially LBJ. So LBJ would later on, like, recognize the political benefit of being seen as a war hero, uh, like Truman was, use Truman's life as kind of like a blueprint. Uh, but LBJ would basically enlist in the military but, uh, you know, not do anything, um, make sure he's on, uh, you know, a plane in a bombing mission, get a silver star, uh, get all the credit, but not, you know, see any action, uh, cynically, you know, use that whole experience for political benefit. And that will come up over and over again, the parallels between FDR and Truman. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, this, this. Or, I mean, uh, sorry, LBJ and Truman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think you're the first one to point. I never really thought about this that they have these sort of parallel trajectories, uh, except yeah. for the fact that like the one singular difference seemed to be that 
LBJ actually was this sort of charismatic force on some level that had to be dealt with. Whereas Truman, uh, yeah, as you said, like the the thing that comes up over and over again is unremarkable. (laughs) Anybody anybody that ever meets them. And, uh, you know, so he goes to war one, he comes back and he decides to get into, uh, you know, to go into business. Right. Yeah. He has a department store with all his uh, military buddies. And, uh, you know, he sells a bunch of farm equipment to get that going. And then the depression hits. Done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he goes through sort of a variety of businesses, none of which really ever get off the ground. Which, hey, you know, we're not going to we're not going to uh, fault anybody for being bad at business. No. Yeah, just, that's, yeah, that's yeah it, just, it just more speaks to his, like, overall career of just being, like, again, unremarkable. I mean, this is this is his story pretty much the entire time. But his, his real... Like the the biggest, most important moment in his life comes in 1922, right? When he's approached by Tom Pendergast to become a county judge in Kansas, right? And Tom Getter, t- Tom Pendergast is the head of the Kansas City like Democratic Party machine, right? And so uh, since party machines don't really like exist functionally in this country anymore, uh justin like what if you could briefly maybe what, what what the hell is a party machine yeah i mean basically you had um you know kind of like this party boss structure you had a lot of people who are the party bosses you know underlings that were embedded in um their local communities um you know, the, there there might be like some relationship of like patronage between you know people and then the various you know layers of the the machine. Maybe they vote a certain way. Maybe the party boss slips some five bucks. Uh, maybe on voting day, uh, you know, the party boss's people take them for a ride and they go to like five precincts and vote five times for the same person. <laughs> yeah, most uh, famously. The uh, daily party machine in Chicago, right, yeah. was able to mobilize a, a lot of tombstones for JFK yes. in his first election, right? You know, yeah. And then yeah. Kelly in this whole story is definitely mm-hmm. like, you know, a, a boss amongst the party bosses for sure. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there's uh, famously there's the New York machine, right, uh, which, you know, you know, made famous by the, the term Tammany Hall seems to have its own sort of definition now, right? You know, based yeah. off of the New York party machine. Chicago, famous for having its uh, party machine. But a lot of these, like, smaller cities had them, too. You know, St. Louis had one. Uh, Kansas City had them. And it was basically a sort of, you know, uh, apparatus to a particular party, in this case the Democrats, that handed out patronage in exchange for essentially support and votes, right? Yeah. And, and part of their job was picking the people to fill the various positions that were going to be, you know, quote unquote elected. Right. And, and Truman's one of the guys, right. Right. And like, as far as, you know, picking the politicians, Mm -hmm. it's not like, you know, this is, this is not like democratic centralism or something where the party bosses control all their decisions. Mm -hmm. You know, they might just go to their handpicked, you know, politician be like, Hey, I need this government contract that's gonna make me and my mm-hmm. friends some money you know vote for it push that through 
Yeah, yeah. This is uh, this is much more old timey corruption than some yeah. vision that people might have of like an authoritarian state, right? Where it's just like I'm gonna pick the guy who now it's more like the mafia. Like I got you this very cool job in the government, right? And so now, like we understand that we kind of like we're in this together. and we owe each other some favors right with this corruption you can understand like i mean Mm -hmm. at least it kind of makes sense it's like you scratch my back i scratch yours there isn't this whole like muddying of the waters with uh capitalism and people pressuring people you know behind the scenes and Mm -hmm. money coming in through places where you can't even see yeah, well, and I mean, I think I think Tom Pendergast himself, right? You brought up the five dollars. I think that's the thing that like actually happened, where he like offered five dollars for some votes. Yeah. So in that case, you know, in voting for say, you know, some Democratic nominee, he at least offered you five dollars, whereas the Democratic Party offers you nothing now, right? So you know, in some sense, hey, you know, you could have nothing and five dollars or just nothing. <laughs> you know, yeah, if you want to take the, the most cynical look at it. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, um Pendergast makes Truman a county judge. Uh the interesting thing about that is like county judges in uh Missouri actually had, you know, some power. Um, you know, they handle the county's finances, they're involved mm-hmm. in like public works projects. So, you know, there there's a reason. Pendergast makes him a judge. Yeah, yeah. By judge, it's not like sitting in court listening to cases, right? Like they're doing like serious administrative, you know, work, right? And you could also see for a party machine, right? Or for a party boss, right? Why it's important to, you know, control these judgeships because, yeah, like a lot of the, uh, a lot of the gifts that you use, right, are going to be handed out via these judgeships. Yeah, or even just like jobs for people uh, Mm -hmm. that are connected, you know, especially with like public works projects. You know, I think there is, there's some like library or something Truman uh, helped make happen. Uh, Mm -hmm. You can read more on that. Yeah. And so now true to form, you know, Truman, the unremarkable man, uh, loses his reelection in 1924, which is pretty funny because you have to assume that the Pendergast machine was probably putting the thumb on the scale for him pretty well there. <laughs> he still managed to fuck it up. Yeah, I know. I know there was a, a rival, you know, machine like not mm-hmm. as powerful as the Pendergast machine. I think a, yeah, they each had like their own kind of like symbol, like the rabbits and the goats. Uh, you know, I don't know too much oh. about the other machine. This, but, is, uh, this is sounding like gangs of New York. Sorry, I'm, I loving said, it. Uh, I'm loving it. <laughs> I said uh, St. Louis. I meant Kansas City. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is all in Kansas City with Pendergast. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, Truman has a brief bout back in the you know private sector, but ends up going right back in uh, to politics when Pendergast calls on him to be presiding judge, which is just like the head of all the county judges for Jackson County, right? And he go and he does that in nineteen twenty six, gets reelected in nineteen thirty. And I found I can't remember where I found it, but there was this amazing quote from Truman where he basically was like, you know, uh being in business is fine and everything, but it's just too unstable for a family man. So I went back into politics. <laughs> yeah. And I mean like Truman's not even that corrupt. Like he just wants a mm-hmm. stable job and uh but he also wants to get, you know, his family members' jobs. So like Truman doesn't make a shit ton of money off politics like somebody like you know lbj but uh he does hook people he knows up with uh Mm -hmm. yeah i think the thing to remember about truman is 
it's all pretty small time for Truman for most of his life. Uh, I don't think he's a guy with particularly big visions of himself or the world. Uh, he certainly would not have the single-minded, like, narrow drive for power that, say, like, Hillary Clinton has or something like that, right? Or an LBJ, quite frankly. That's who I was uh, thinking of, because LBJ yeah. gets people, you know, he knows to uh, sell him a radio station or radio network, like, on the cheap. Mm-hmm. He makes a shit ton of money off that. Like, Truman never had any of those kinds of arrangements. Yeah, yeah. Truman is really the last of these sort of presidents, right? Where, you know, maybe Eisenhower, you could put in this category too, but of these guys who just kind of like fall into things. Whereas, you know, like John Kennedy was groomed from birth and some yeah. fu- like in a fucking lab to be president. Yeah. LBJ had a psychotic desire to be president. Richard Nixon, of course, uh, wanted to be president so he could smite all of his rivals, you know, yeah. and so on and so on. And uh, Truman really is this guy who's just sort of just constantly just falling into it, you know, which is, uh, you know, an interesting sort of characteristic of him. And, you know, and, I mean, in, in sort of, you know, perfect example of this is, you know, after he runs and gets elected in uh, 1930, again, gets reelected uh, to be presiding judge, he basically goes to Pendergrass and is like, hey, man, anyway, I could run for like governor or uh, Congress or something, you know, like, you know, move my career up a level. Yeah. And Pendergrass is like, yeah, no, <laughs> no, thanks. Gotta <laughs> and, wait your turn. Yeah, yeah. And, and Truman basically just accepts it and is like, yeah, I mean, it's pretty cool being like presiding judge. I'll just do that forever. You yeah. know? Like and I'll, I'll kind of get out of it. Maybe when I'm in my 50s and have like a nice cush job doing some other thing. And, you know, he, like he's pretty much just said all these like, yeah, I guess this is what I'm going to do. But yeah, uh, and then Pendergast taps. Uh, what's his name? Clark. Or sorry, yeah. Lloyd C. Stark uh, to run for governor, which would come up later when uh, they run against each other for Senate. <laughs> yeah. And so, again, like just uh, things fall in his lap, you know, in 1934, you know, a uh, Senate seat opens up and Pendergast wants to fill it. And so he's going around asking people, you know, who wants to run, you know, uh, who wants to run for him. And everybody tells him, no, I think he says he goes through four different people before he finally goes again to old Harry Truman. And it's like, hey, guess whose number is up, bud? <laughs> You're running for Senate now. Gotta and yeah, you got to do it. Got to do it. And it was so, you know, Truman gets elected. And uh, to give you the, the level of respect that he got inside the Senate, he was referred to on the floor of the Senate as the senator from Pendergast. Yeah. <laughs> he was there, uh, which, uh, you know, you honestly again a more egotistical or politically driven person you would think that might make them like furious but while i don't know that truman was happy about it i don't know that bugged him all that much either and he didn't i mean yeah yeah. he didn't really hide from the pendergast you know connections either like he still takes pendergast calls like during this period yeah yeah and again because of I, I think because he's just sort of an unremarkable person, because he's seen as part of this machine, although a lot of senators were, uh, he's just sort of like ignored by his colleagues. He is bitter of the fact that he really wants to. I mean, this is like like little kid shit. He really wants to talk to FDR. And yeah. He keeps, and he keeps calling him and FDR won't return his phone calls. Because, well, yeah, Truman <laughs> is, you know, voting for the majority of the New Deal legislation. 
Uh, but he's like, why is FDR ignoring me? There's people that keep voting against him. FDR is having meetings with them. Like he's, yeah, he's pissed off about that. Yeah. And I mean, in, you know, FDR is this sort of like Titan of politics. I mean, he is the probably most popular person in America at the time. And it, and it is kind of funny, this thing of like, I, I really do think that Truman just wants to talk to him on the phone. Like if that's all, yeah. if that's all FDR ever did, I think he would be totally happy. Yeah. <laughs> like but he can't get the phone call um but again this is all just to set up the idea right that it is incredibly unlikely that this man becomes president right uh, yeah it really like, is yeah it surprised everybody i think yeah yeah by 1940 right like if even in you know four years before he ends up becoming vp in 1940 if you'd ask people about Oh, yeah, I was told somebody that this guy, you know, the Senator Harry Truman's going to become president. Uh, I think they might have just laughed, right? Now, he does do some things to try and elevate his stature a little bit, right? Which he he does the um, investigations into, like, uh, wartime industries and corruption, right? Which yeah. Hilarious. Yeah, which I think you put out, like, gets... Uh, uh, like LBJ literally does like the exact same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, like Truman is actually actually sets up a committee during World War II. You know, he drives around. Um, you know, he looks for you know soldiers slacking off. Uh, you know that he also looks at like the balance sheets of mm-hmm. uh, you know steel that they're buying. You know, like uh, weapons that they haven't used, like things like that. He didn't really investigate the Manhattan Project, uh, but he investigated everything else. Um, so later on, I mean, LBJ would kind of see this. He's like, oh, Truman got, you know, some great press out of this. You know, this is how Truman made his name. But LBJ is like, well, you know, this doesn't really matter. Like he gives a shit about the, you know, actually like, you know, uh, preventing some corruption. I don't care about that, but I do want the press. So LBJ forms his own (laughs) committee and basically like does nothing but submit press releases and have meetings and that's how he makes his name it's cynical as fuck but it's awesome yeah yeah and and i think truman's truman also becomes like one of the senates i think he sees some other senators get a little hay with this and he becomes one of the senates like big anti-communists in the 1940s right and i think all this kind of comes to in 1940 when he has to go up for re-election right uh one, his benefactor, uh, Pendergast, uh, gets sent to prison for tax evasion. Yep. <laughs> so, whoops. And uh, and he ends up having to run against uh, this guy who is a real name, right, in, in Stark, who we talked yeah. about earlier. And people really think that Truman's not going to be able to win. And this is where your uh, great-grandfather comes in as the party boss of St. Louis, right? Sure, yeah. And, uh, you know, to hear my family tell it, you know, who, you know, I will admit I have an interest in uh, hanging out with them in St. Louis at some point. So, you know, there, there's a limit to how hard I'm going to go in on this. But, um, you know, my, my great grandfather, you know, was um, the son of a police chief in St. Louis. Uh, very, very well connected. Um, he rose up real fast in Democratic uh, politics and uh, died very young. Um, to hear my family tell it, you know, he was just, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, smart, like driven person. He was also like a very good athlete. So he made his name somewhat there, uh, became well connected. Um, 
probably wasn't as you know powerful as a party boss as uh, Pendergast, you know, in, in Kansas mm-hmm. City, but um, did have a lot of influence. Um, and so in this uh, primary, where it looks like uh, Truman is going to lose to Stark, um, Truman is eventually able to get the support of the senior uh, senator from uh, Missouri, uh, Bennett Clark, um, who hooks him up with uh, Hannigan. Um, And Truman is able, Truman and Hannigan are able to pull together enough votes in St. Louis, where I think, uh, you know, he even wins outright in St. Louis and uh, just barely, barely edge out, I think by like a point or so, Stark, in the democratic primary. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this is, uh, maybe Truman's, uh, first taste of like a, a real battle for a big political position and then coming out, you know, like scraping by, you know, <laughs> like be, being seen as the guy who's going to lose and then scrape by. Now he's going to do this again with Dewey. Yeah. Right. And, uh, in 48, uh, famously holding up the Dewey wins newspaper. Right. Um, but, I think he barely beat the Republican in the in the general election too. Like he might have only won that by like two points, or that's like a Democratic Party like dominant state at the time. Yeah, yeah. Although as Dom Toretto says, winning is winning. You know. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah. So you know, this basically sets up kind of you know who Truman is going into the. 44 convention i mean he's kind of made a little bit of a name for himself on the senate floor but really is again i mean this guy who just over and over again people's sight is like unremarkable not a particularly good public speaker not particularly like handsome or anything like that right like no no traits that would key you in on the idea well and if you notice like during during that race uh stark uh basically you know and before that like stark goes against pendergast like correctly because he knows like uh Mm -hmm. the hammer is going to come down on pendergast or truman just keeps on towing the line and Mm -hmm. uh he went yeah i mean that he won is uh Yeah, yeah yeah well i think this is like one of the key aspects of truman actually that explains his sort of rise to the presidency is that he is loyal to those who brought him there like he is uh you know and i think this explains like why pendergast liked him i think it's gonna explain why hannigan likes him and things like that right like he he is nobody who is going to rock the boat and again i think this comes back to the fact that really compared to your average politician i mean he he's almost has no ego compared to the average politician he almost has no drive compared to the average politician right you know he just is happy to be there in a lot of ways yeah and i mean uh, you'll see a little bit during you know his presidency too where he just wants things to kind of like operate smoothly he doesn't have any like grand like ideology or anything yeah when i think in this sort of like american way that we like to talk about well very childish way we like to talk about politics you know i already can see myself writing this essay about why he's such a great president is we're like no ego no drive like uh that must make him the perfect president uh (laughs) but we're gonna see where that gets us yeah exactly Um, so we have this um build up right to the 1944 convention right so uh the democratic national convention it's you know pretty much assured you know uh 
you know, Roosevelt's the nominee, right? And, you know, I think people going into the convention, despite the election results maybe being closer than someone might have thought, are pretty sure that Roosevelt's going to win. You know, he's still very yeah. popular. The New Deal's still very popular. He's, you know, the war is still happening, right? You know, a lot of, a lot of indications that Roosevelt's going to win. But there is this uh, interesting thing, which is his health. So what, what condition was Roosevelt in going into this convention? I mean, yeah, he was doing terribly. Everybody knew he was going to die with within the year uh, when yeah. people. Well, we should be clear about, by everybody, not the public, right? <laughs> not, being, not, not, the public, not being told sure. this, but, but also, everybody on the inside of the party knew. <laughs> but FDR was not campaigning at this yeah. time. Like he was, you know, they were piping his voice into events. He was on the radio, but nobody mm-hmm. was really like seeing him much in person. Like besides maybe like a wave out of a train car or something. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, if you were probably a keen observer, if we were doing, uh, you know, Seattle sucks in 1944, we probably would have been Roosevelt truthers about, you know, he's already dead. This is just, (laughs) this is just a clone. He was executed for pedophilia, you know, all this kind of stuff. But, um, but yeah, for the, for the public, I mean, there, there's still this illusion that maybe he's okay, but in the party itself, as you're saying, there's, there's no illusions. This guy is fucking, you know, leaving, exiting the building sooner rather than Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, the party bosses knew this, um, but they were kind of concerned trolling FDR um, because they knew FDR needed their help to win. Um, mm-hmm. So they were con- concerned trolling FDR that, you know, we think the election's going to be closer this time. Uh, you know, Dewey is going to be a stronger challenger. Um, you know, if you select the wrong VP candidate, you know, you could lose where... I mean, there, there, there's some like validity to like if FDR, you know, chose a certain candidate, one of these party bosses would lose votes, you know, mm-hmm. within their state. So like that, that was a, a possibility. But really, like, I mean, and we'll get into this more, but um, it seems like the, the party bosses wanted somebody they knew and that they could control. And that person was not going to be Wallace. Yeah, right. Because, you know, if FDR is going to die and you keep his current VP, uh, Henry Wallace, in charge, you're looking at, you know, what would end up being a very long Wallace presidency taking over. But this is considered unacceptable, uh, not just from party bosses, right? But it's considered unacceptable from the business community, right? And, yeah. you know, I mean, part of getting into politics, right, is getting some of the, that, that sweet, sweet business money and, you know, keeping the whole thing going. And, uh, you know, you're not going to get that with Wallace there, right? There's going right. to be revolts, you know? So the party was... Oh, okay. go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, this is also, you know, post-Depression. Uh, you know, this is like wartime uh, economy. Um, there's, uh, you know, the AFL and CIO had negotiated for a temporary, you know, halt to strikes. I mean, strikes still happened, but... Um, yeah, so there, there's like a lot of uh, context and material circumstances here as well that contributed to this. Yeah, there's a labor piece that's going. One of the things that's happening too under the sort of uh, wartime industry buildup, right, and arms buildup is that there is a from the federal government wage freeze, right, for industrial workers. Yeah. 
But, you know, businesses were raking in shit on the record profits. Right. Uh And so for them, you know, uh, the new deals over long live the new flash. Right. You know, we want to live this way. Right. So they're extremely interested in a change at the top. Right. To say the least. Um, Definitely. And there seems to be the, the, you know, the business choice or maybe the conservative part of the Democratic Party's choice is this man from the South, James Burns. Right. So oh, yeah. maybe guess a little bit about James Burns. Yeah, I mean, Burns was a senator at one point from uh, South Carolina. Um, mm-hmm. uh, definitely a segregationist. Uh, definitely. <laughs> Definitely very uh, strongly anti-labor. <laughs> not not uh, the CIO, not a fan of his. Um, mm-hmm. He would later become uh, Secretary of State. <laughs> we, we, might, we might talk about uh, some of his actions there in a future, in a uh, future podcast. Uh, I wrote an essay called The Best Secretary. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he also is, I believe, has the distinction of being the shortest term supreme court justice oh right yeah yeah because yeah. <laughs> yeah, i think he serves for like one year <laughs> on the supreme court yeah um, and then he works in fdr's uh administration mm-hmm. later on yeah and basically he is an extraordinary important so at this time right the democratic party is the dominant party in the american south and the dominant party of segregation right which is this holdover from you know the end of reconstruction and you know, so they have this pro segregation southern wing of the party and and burns really is like maybe the most prominent member of it you know uh whenever you look him up you always get things like most prominent south carolina uh politician since john c calhoun which is funny on many levels <laughs> if you know anything about john calhoun yeah um so you know, he's this very prominent figure. So, you know, it would kind of make sense, you know, uh, bring on board this, uh, you know, Southern politician who's definitely going to win the South of the South's not really in question at this point. And Roosevelt had uh, done that before with uh, Cactus Jack uh, Garner, definitely a conservative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, with his uh, uh, first VP. Roosevelt was in office so long, he had three VPs. Yeah. So, you know, but yeah. But Burns had uh, some problems that you got into, right? Which is that labor fucking hated him because he was an infamous strike breaker and things like that. Uh, He also opposed things like the minimum wage that were popular. Uh, But the big thing was that he, when we say he's pro-segregation, he was pro-fucking segregation. Uh, and to give you an idea, there was anti-lynching bills in 1935 and 1937, and he not only opposed the bills, he was an open an open proponent of lynching, <laughs> which even in the 1930s wasn't the most popular position on the planet. Uh, yeah, you know, so this was his baggage, right? And so this creates some problems, right, for his potential VPness. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, basically, the theory was if you select uh, Burns as the VP candidate, you're going to lose, right and rightfully so, a lot mm-hmm. of uh, black vote in the North. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I said, I mean, this guy is most famous for basically 
telling newspapers about all the good things lynching has brought the South and why he can't get rid of it. So, I mean, this is not a guy who's going to win black votes no matter what. And in <laughs> I mean, terms of, yeah. like, power, you know, uh, Dick Russell, the senator from Georgia, mm-hmm. like him and others, had filibustered the shit out of any civil rights bill, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that came to the Senate floor or, you know, procedurally used tactics just to stop any civil rights bill. Or if a civil rights bill did pass, they would just gut, gut it. So it was meaningless. Yeah. Was yeah. Meaningless. yeah. And, um, and, Comically, you know, uh, Burns is one of these sort of politicians, right, who is psychotically dedicated to his career and all this kind of stuff and making a name for himself in his place in history. And one of the sort of funnier things he does is convince Truman that like FDR really wants him to be VP. <laughs> and, yeah. I think, and at one point I think he, is it that he gets Truman to like give his nominating yeah, speech? Tr- Truman was going to give uh, the nominating speech up until a few days before the convention. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. He basically, he almost in a very modern era, like way owns Truman, but yeah. yeah. Which is, you know, a shrewd move, but uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so leading up, right, you know. Oh, can we go over uh, the last candidate? Uh, you know, the, the the PMC liberal choice is uh, William O. Douglas, who's a former SCOTUS candidate, uh, thought of as a New Deal liberal, like a lighter, you know, Wallace Light. Mm-hmm. Um, has no chance of winning. Like, he's not going to win, but mm-hmm. people like to think that he could win. So they yeah. could, you know, feel good about themselves. Uh, think of him as the Elizabeth Warren candidate of oh, this convention. 100%. He, whenever uh, people talk about him, it's about all his credentials. Yeah. Uh, but 100% guaranteed to not bring a single vote to the ticket. I the Pod Save America radio guys yeah. of the 40s yeah. would have been all over Douglas. I'm sure they were. Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolute loser of a candidate. Uh, so everybody wants to know, like, who is FDR going to back, right? I mean, because this yeah. matters, right? He's, he's the president, right? He's incredibly popular. Uh, if he comes out strong for somebody, you know, no matter what the machinations of the party bosses might be or what the business community wants, like, it's probably going to get shoved down their throat, right? If FDR wants it, right? So what yep. does FDR do? <laughs> uh, FDR sends Wallace to Manchuria in Siberia, uh, you know, like a month before the convention or something. <laughs> I mean, this shit is one of the funniest. Like, I didn't. So I knew that the forty-four convention was a shit show and all this kind of stuff. I had no fucking idea how funny it was. They literally send him to Siberia. Yeah, and FDR <laughs> is like so passive aggressive about all this. He's not going to say like, "No, I don't like you, Wallace. I don't want you as VP. I'm just going to send you away." <laughs> this is this is right before the convention. I mean, he sends well, away for months. Yeah, you know, well, all the party bosses are just, like, scheming behind his back. Yeah. <laughs> He's, like, fucking off somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, one of the funny, like, side stories of it is, uh, you know, while presumably reporting back to Roosevelt about, what's, about what snow feels like in Siberia, he eventually, yeah, makes his way down to Manchuria, and he observes the situation in China, right? You know, the the ongoing war between uh, Japan and China. Yeah. And Roosevelt asks him about, you know, the U.S. at this time is backing the Chinese nationalists, you know, headed by Chiang Kai-shek. And 
Roosevelt, you know, asks him for a report on this, or maybe doesn't ask him a report, but gets a report on it. And Wallace hilariously is like, I think this Chiang Kai-shek guy's full of shit. Nobody seems to like him. I think these communists might win. And of course, and I'm sure the report was just laughed at. They probably had a really good laugh in the White House and just, you know, banked it off the wall into the trash can. <laughs> but hilariously, Wallace was right on China. Very funny, like, side note. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Didn't know that. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so they literally send them to Siberia. The, the, the humorous, like, joke you make when you fuck a politician over <laughs> and ruin their career. They, you know, actually do it to Wallace. Uh, and then while Wallace is away, you know, all the party bosses, right, are kind of, like, pitching their guys to FDR, right? To try and, yeah. you know, and probably, like, grabbing his hand and trying to, like, write things on paper with it and stuff. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and so at this point, my great-grandfather has now succeeded uh, Flynn as chairman of the DNC. And so he has, he's having meetings with the other party bosses. He's having meetings with FDR. He's telling FDR... Uh, Wallace has got to come off the ticket. We might we we might lose if uh, you know Wallace is on the ticket, which is total bullshit. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like uh, Wallace is wildly popular, as all you know polling data from the Time show. So you know how having him on the ticket would cause you to lose is a little uh, hard to understand. But you know FDR is. You know, I think for a lot of reasons, doesn't you know is not interested at the time, right? So. Eventually, FDR write FDR does write like a letter, right? Where like he's yeah. like eh, Wallace, <laughs> you know, on it. Where he sort of soft suggests Wallace says what he said. It. And well, because what he had done previously at the convention was like he's just like, hey, Wallace is my VP. That's who I want. That's it. Uh, mm. What he says this time is he releases a letter that says, if I were a delegate at the convention, I would cast my vote for Wallace. It's like very, very tepid. And yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, we get to the convention. Wallace shows, <laughs> Wallace comes back from Siberia, literally just in time for the yeah. convention. Two days um, before. Yeah. And uh, the convention's in Chicago. Uh, you have, you know, these huge color images of FDR on the stage, right? Um you know, it's a it's a spectacle. I, you know, at this time, right, it's assured that the U.S. is coming out on the winning side of this war, right? Yeah. Uh, this is a, as much a victory march as it is a, a political convention. And uh, while well, FDR is there on print, is not there in person, right? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I mean, we could get into the stuff that happens at the convention, but yeah, FDR is not there. Um, you know, when he gives this quote unquote convention speech, it's actually, you know, his voice being uh, like piped in there through the sound system, like this booming voice just coming from the speakers and you <laughs> the <know>. ghost. <laughs> yeah, ghost, yes. <laughs> yeah. And so what ends up happening? So day one, you know, you have all the, you know, big speeches or whatever, but day two is when you can first give nominations right what ends up happening at the convention so yeah i mean there's all these you know behind the scenes meetings that are going on between all the party bosses um 
you know, eventually, like all the party bosses and Roosevelt have had this meeting where, you know, finally, like Roosevelt and the bosses are like, oh, Burns is the guy. And uh, Burns kind of celebrates, you know, on the five yard line, you know, that night. <laughs> um, but really what Roosevelt and Hannigan had been saying all along, partly because they knew the outcome of this was you got to clear it with Sydney. And so. Mm -hmm. uh sydney hillman is a big you know figure in the you know cio mm -hmm. um you know big in labor uh former you know actually a former member of the socialist party of the usa um so sydney's not going to be down with uh burns yeah. <laughs> sydney was never going <laughs> to choose burns um yeah telling him you have to clear it with sydney is basically telling him no yeah <laughs> and so sydney's kind of position after all these meetings um is that, you know, he's all in for Wallace. He's going to try hard for Wallace. Uh, he would absolutely not accept Burns, uh, but he might be okay with Truman. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so on the so, so there there is a, a ray of light that's being shown, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. For those who seek to get rid of Wallace. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, and so, like, eventually, also, I, I think, actually, this might have happened, like, five days before the convention, but, um, you know, my great-grandfather uh, meets with FDR on a train in Chicago um, and gets uh, this letter from FDR that says, um, you know, Truman or Douglas would be okay. Um, and there's speculation that the order was originally, you know, Douglas and then Truman, but my great-grandfather has it typed up and then dated, you know, July 19th, like during the convention, uh, that it's Truman and then Douglas. And he's just like talking up this yep. letter he has the whole time. <laughs> yeah, so he presents this letter that's, uh, and again, I mean, FTR is so sick or, and whatnot that he can't be there. So he's presenting this letter as the final word of the dead prophet, right? Of uh, yeah. It's literally, uh, this will give people a hint of when we recorded this. This is literally the Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, deathbed confession, uh, let the new president replace me. Not, not, not the current one. <laughs> you know, just some bullshit. Um, but yeah, so he throws this up there, and now, you know, after all this time, right? We've we've already explained like sort of what a mediocrity Truman's been up to this point, but now is this moment, right? And yeah, yeah, except for the fact that his moment almost gets stolen from him on day one, <laughs> which is uh, there's. There's the the stampede for Wallace. What was the, right. what was the stampede I think for Wallace? I think it's day two. I oh, think day two, day, sorry, day two. Yeah. Day one of the convention, like nothing happens. It's like yeah, the they, Democratic and, convention we have now, where like people just yeah. give speeches. Who cares? And I think formally they're not allowed to nominate until day two, right? Ah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah, day two, um, the convention is in Chicago Stadium. You know, there's 24,000 seats. There's this big, giant image of FDR, cardboard cutouts of military soldiers. Um, a lot of people, a lot more than 24,000 people are in that stadium. Uh, you know, people like McCullough and his biography estimate 35,000. Um, <laughs> my, uh, let's see, my grandmother's brother uh, was involved in another book called Choosing Truman. And uh, in that book, they claim, you know, there's no like, uh, they, they claim that um, 
uh, people just had four tickets to each day of the convention and people like used all their tickets on day one. Uh, that's mm-hmm. the claim in that book. In the McCullough biography, he claims that, um, uh, you know, the Chicago uh, party boss, Kelly, like wanted his guy, Senator Lucas, uh, to be uh, the winner at the convention in, in the event that there's like uh, no clear winner. Um, mm-hmm. So he didn't want anybody to win outright. And so they claim like he printed like 15,000 counterfeit tickets. I mean, like, who knows? Maybe it's a little <laughs> bit. I don't know. Yeah, but the, the effect is, is that there's a shit ton of people inside the convention hall, right? And Wallace comes in apparently to uh, let the tall corn grow or whatever. Yeah. It comes into his theme song, like fucking WrestleMania. Right. The lights go down. The theme song comes on, you know, lasers, smoke. Right. Uh, He's flexing. Right. There's an organ playing. And my great grandfather is like, shut down that organ. Someone find the organ player. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, he's got, uh, uh, you know, two unlicensed tunes playing, you know, they're angry. Uh, And he gets up and he gives a speech and people go fucking nuts. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and this chance of Wallace pulling the we want Wallace, yeah, and uh, this is this is bad, right? For 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 players who've been trying to get Wallace out, this is bad news. Uh, worse news is that uh, one of the um, what do you call it, nominating you know reps or whatever for the convention is making his way up to the microphone because he yeah. realizes that if he can get up to the microphone and call for the nomination, that they would have to do the nomination now. Yeah. Cause the party bosses have not finished all their, their deal making. The theory mm-hmm. behind the Wallace people was they, they do this nomination after the stampede. Like it'll just go through. Then Wallace is the VP. Yeah. And so this guy, Senator Claude Pepper, right. Is yep. uh, he's from Florida. Right. And he's trying to make his way to the podium through the, the pandemonium to put Wallace's name out for the nomination, right? Yep. And what happens then? Um, so basically the, you know, the chair of the the DNC, the person with uh, the gavel, uh, I forget who actually that is. Uh, oh, it's uh, it looks like in my notes it's Samuel Jackson. Mm-hmm. Um, he just not, called not- the voice. Not the actor, let's be no, clear. No, not, not the actor, uh, who, who is awesome. Um, but the convention chair calls for a voice vote to adjourn. A bunch of people say yay, a bunch of people say nay, but who gives a shit? He just gavels it out. He's like, okay, yeah. done. Yeah. And, um, and I believe the 2016 Nevada primary had a very similar incident happen uh, where they voice voted to get rid of the Bernie supporters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and no matter what it was, the, the answer was yes. Right? Yep. And so uh, there's actually some audio. Uh, there's like some documentaries you can see on YouTube and stuff about this convention. And there is some audio actually from this moment. And at least where that microphone was sitting, which I assume was on stage somewhere, uh, that's a fucking nay <laughs> in that yeah. room. But, but it didn't matter, right? You know? No, yeah. Um, the PBS documentary, if you watch that, I think it came mm-hmm. out in 1997. Uh, mm-hmm. My grandmother, Pat, um, 
was like a you know featured speaker on that. So there's that little tidbit. <laughs> there you go. When you see Justin's uh, grandmother walking around Seattle, make sure you get her autograph. Um, uh, she, she is not, she, she is unfortunately uh, not alive anymore. But um, all right, well, that was tasteless on my part then. All right, <laughs> I'm gonna I, I'm gonna seek restorative justice with you later, Brian. It's okay. <laughs> all right, we'll have another podcast about that. Yes. <laughs> um. So yeah, you know the days fill the hall. The gavel closed anyways, and they basically say because they're they're ending the convention day early, and they basically just like uh fire hazard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, that was the justification. I mean, there were a shit ton of people there. I'm sure it was hot. I'm sure it was noisy. I'm sure it was uncomfortable. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that was not the real reason they gaveled it. Up. <laughs> so then, what happens that night? Uh, basically, uh, you know, my great grandfather Hannigan, uh, all the other party bosses are up late into the night, just like twisting people's arms. Uh, Unless, unless you read the the book, you know, uh, my family member was involved in where he says, like, no, they went to sleep at a reasonable hour and uh, they talked in the morning. Yeah, it's very, it's very, uh, you know, it's like there, there's no subterfuge here. Everybody did things in uh, an orderly fashion. But, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, everybody just changed their mind overnight. No big deal. Exactly. Yeah. But um, I'm sure there were a lot of deals cut. I mean, people were made ambassadors. Um my great grandfather would later be a uh, postmaster general. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I don't, it's hard to keep track. Even now, it's hard to keep track of all the ambassadorships, and because uh, that's a nice job where you get to travel. Yeah. A lot of people, well, you know, people still get picked up with that job. Yeah, when people forget, like especially if you're running a, a party machine, like postmaster general is a fucking important job. <laughs> if you're running a party machine, right? There's a lot of work you can hand out. <laughs> You know, oh, um, yeah, yeah, of that, yeah, all the way down the chain. There's a lot of work you can hand out, right? And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's a big job. That's why people actually want to have it. Um, you know, now they just want to have it to privatize it. But you know, in the past, that's why people wanted to have it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, right. Like, yeah. So yeah, ambassadorships are being handed out. Jobs are being handed out. Right. Deals are being cut. Right. This is. Yeah. You know, if you if you wanted something, if you were a delegate, a voting delegate, and you wanted something. This was the time to be alive. <laughs> it was, it was definitely, on night. <laughs> definitely, yeah. You got uh, you got to wet your beak a bit. Yeah. So, day three rolls around, right? And uh, what ends up happening on day three, right? So that right. we're on the next day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So my great grandfather, you know, we talked about you know the letter with from FDR saying he'd support Truman or Douglas, uh, you know he releases it. He says like, here's the letter. I can prove it. Um, it's dated a day later than the day he releases it. He felt like, oh, <laughs> curious. Yeah. And he's like, oh, well. <laughs> this letter is it. extremely authentic. <laughs> yeah. I had it saved in my tweet deck. Sorry. You know, it just came out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Um, the other thing that ends up happening is, uh, Mayor Kelly, Edward Kelly, who's the mayor of Chicago and Chicago famous, you know, democratic sort of machine city. Uh, he decides, well, you know, because, because of the fire hazard yesterday, 
better keep some people out of this convention. So he has, yeah. So he has Chicago PD keep all the Wallace delegates out of the convention that they they can find, right? Yeah. So there's no a stampede happening this time. Yeah. Yeah. So they're 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 blocking the gates. Right, to make sure that the right kind of people are in, and uh, and then they go ahead and they take a vote. And how's the how's that first vote look? So, like the strategy from the party bosses is that basically they want to convince all the people that aren't like totally aligned with them, just vote for your favorite, you know, local son, like a local, you know, like senator from your state. Um, mm-hmm. And that's basically a strategy to make sure that Wallace doesn't, you know, win right off on the first ballot because yeah, he so needs uh, the second ballot, right? Yeah. yeah, he needs like four hundred whatever votes, um, and Wallace falls just short of that on the first ballot. Yeah, and weirdly, the primaries this year, back before, uh, back when it looked like they might be in some sort of doubt, uh, of course. There, there, there was word of a strategy to do a similar thing. That's yeah, to ensure that Bernie could not win on the first ballot because the second yeah. ballot's always a little easier to fix. Um, so yeah, so you know, Wallace ends up beating Truman right on that first ballot, uh, four hundred twenty-nine delegates to three hundred nineteen. Right. Yep. Um, but because he doesn't have a large enough majority, it goes to the second ballot. Right. Yeah. And uh, what ends up happening is miraculously on that second ballot everything shifts to truman yeah like all these people that realize that their you know local like favorite son weren't gonna win uh shift to truman and then truman's ahead by a little bit yeah and as i recall they do a a third ballot which truman just crushes because of the writing i think is on the wall at this point yeah just kind of says fuck it right yeah uh and then Probably the ultimate irony, uh, which will probably hit people who uh, campaign for Bernie extra hard when we say this. Uh, after all this happens, and and I think it's clear at the time too that like the fix is in, right? <laughs> like the, that some shit has gone oh, yeah. down. Even after all that, Wallace pledges to support the Roosevelt Truman ticket. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, my God. Yeah. Um, so Truman ends up with the nomination again, just the most unlikely series of events brings this guy who everybody <laughs> remarked as being unremarkable into one step away from the presidency. And then of course, Roosevelt in April 45 dies and now Truman is president. <laughs> right. And this was, yeah, I mean, shit was, uh, you know, going down and, World War Two, there were, you know, meetings between, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the big three of uh, the allies, you know, Stalin, uh, Churchill, yeah. Roosevelt, and then later on Truman, like, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And now I do have it on some authority that Stalin bonded a touch with Truman in the same way that he bonded with Roosevelt much more deeply by just making fun of Churchill and the British the entire time, which yeah. I gotta say is very funny to me. Because <laughs> Churchill like, would not shut the fuck up. He would just yeah. keep talking and talking and talking. Uh, neither Stalin or Truman like talked that much. You know, yeah. That's the easy way to bond. <laughs> so... Yeah, he ends up uh, taking over, right? And this is, of course, a very formative you know, point, right? Because as you're saying, 
the important meetings about what the post-war order is going to look like are all yeah. happening, right? And Truman's going to get to play this sort of key role, right? And yeah, I want to get to all that stuff. But there was also what he was doing at home because there's also a post-war restructuring on the home front as well, right? I mean, this is a key like deciding point. Is the New Deal going to continue? Are we going to push it forward? Or, or is it going to roll back? And uh, what happened? <laughs> so, like, I mean, if we want to go into the foreign policy stuff next pod, um, you know, I mean, basically, you know, after after the war ends, um, you know, there was that uh, negotiated, you know, moratorium on strikes. And meanwhile, like, workers' conditions were we're not improving. Uh, when the war ends, like shit pops off. Uh, there's strikes going on left and right. The coal miners are striking. Uh, the rail workers are striking. And, uh, you know, Truman does not know how to respond to all that because despite his, uh, you know, him being quote unquote, like friendly with uh, labor, you know, Truman mm-hmm. just wants things to be normal like he he wants things to be you know fluid he doesn't want uh conflict um yeah he doesn't he doesn't want conflict per se and the problem is is that there's striking workers and there's also industry right so i have this great quote from alfred sloan who was ceo of general motors in 1946 and he has this quote says it took 14 years to rid this country of prohibition it is going to take a good while to rid the country of the new deal, but sooner or later the ax falls and we get a change. <laughs> you know, so this is business's position right now, right? Is the new deal dies starting yeah. now. Right. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, Truman is not the guy if you're on the side of labor, right? Truman is not the guy to have protecting you <laughs> at this time. Right. Um, I mean, also, like, the materialist perspective Mm -hmm. would be, like, you know, FDR was kind of implementing some social democratic reforms because he didn't want a revolution. He saw the general Mm -hmm. strike in uh, Seattle. Um, Now, kind of, capital has kind of, like, coalesced, you know, its its power a little bit. Um, And, uh, you know, they have levers on Truman. They, they don't want him to just give in to, you know, the coal miners like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, John Lewis, you know, union boss of that. Uh, they don't want him to settle. They want him to fight back. And, and Truman agrees with that. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's probably worth just having a, a quick sort of uh, side about, you know, FDR. You know, he comes from, you know, an extremely wealthy family. I mean, the Roosevelt's are a New York institution. Part of the appeal of a guy like having, you know, Henry Wallace on his ticket is the fact that everybody knows that this New York institution and, you know, you have this guy from Iowa, right? A farmer, fucking farmer from Iowa, right? To to balance the ticket. And Truman has some of that appeal as well, too, right? Yeah. Um, But, you know... Roosevelt is more sort of a man of his time than a person who's like creating it, right? In the sort of fantastical way we'd sometimes like to think of it. Uh, I'm always reminded his uh, labor secretary, Francis Perkins, you know, in an interview after, you know, in the, I think it was in the 1950s, she did this interview where they were asking her about, you know, the New Deal and Roosevelt's labor policy. And of course, this is the height of anti communism. But she basically says, like, look, you know, Roosevelt wasn't a socialist or anything, but if we did nothing, there would have been a revolution. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Which I think when we get to some of the like 
you know, Roosevelt refusing to sort of like uh, back Wallace strongly and all this kind of stuff. I think we're getting to Roosevelt's sort of weakness on these issues and his sort of lack of uh, commitment, I think, to yeah. some of these things that he had pushed through, you know, committed to his legacy, not so much to the, you know, function of his legacy or anything like that, right? Yeah, and he's just, I mean, he's responding to the various, you know, forces that were, you know, pushing against him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a funny story, if you ever go into the New York Times archive, uh, search Roosevelt and Mussolini together, like between 1932 and 1936. And, you know, you'll get lots of funny stories about how, you know, how he he referred to him as the admiral, admirable Italian gentleman (laughs) and had his mom stay with Mussolini when she visited Italy. Yeah, it's very weird. They have a very weird relationship. The thing is, is because they are not they don't see each other as like these class enemies, right? You know, uh, Roosevelt's a guy trying to control his country. uh, And so is Mussolini, right? Uh, But so for Truman, right, when he gets into this position, um, you know, he, he's mainly just a guy who doesn't want conflict. uh, But at the same time, you know, when conflict happens, whether he wants it or not, he's going to choose the side of business. I mean, he's the predictable guy he always was, right? Oh, yeah. So in these, uh, you know, railway strikes, like, that's that's the thing that's insane is that, uh, you know, like, some of these railway union leaders had actually, like, backed Truman uh, in a Senate Mm -hmm. run. And then, like, all these strikes are going on. Uh, You know, he signs an executive order for the government to seize uh, the railroads to stop the strike. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that delays the strike for five days. It happens. Um, and Truman eventually like threatens to call in, uh, the army on the strikers, uh, in a speech before a joint session of Congress, uh, he says he's going to draft the striking workers into the army. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right about the time of the Korean war, right. (laughs) You know, uh, which the Korean war is an awful fucking bloodbath. So being told you could be drafted into the army for striking is a pretty good reason to not go on strike. I mean, it is kind of interesting. I mean, the, with the railroad, right. Nationalizing the railroad and essentially, you know, saying you're going to fire all the striking workers. I mean, that's literally what Reagan does, right. To the yeah. uh, air traffic controllers. Exactly. And ironically, the PATCO union was one of the few ones that actually backed Reagan in the 1980 election. And he wow. repaid him in the same way that Truman did. Um, Got to learn those lessons, people. Yep. But it's it's also kind of interesting, too, because, you know, maybe it's, you know, for those who aren't so familiar with the history of the 1930s, I mean, the 1935 Wagner Act essentially is what makes striking legal legal in the United States. It had been illegal pretty much all the way up to that point. Uh, And so it's not like we're talking uh, Truman's attacking a a strong legal, you know, institution and stuff and people's right to organize. These are this is these are very fresh rights that have been given to workers, and you know his sort of attacks on them is really strangling the you know infant in its crib in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. Um, the other thing is that you know when Truman gets in and he's you know he's got the Democratic Congress, um, he puts mm-hmm. out this big uh, this big like plan basically where he says like. We need to build more housing. Like we need uh, mm-hmm. national health insurance, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. Which you think would sound good, like that's an extension of the New Deal. But um, Truman 
does not have, you know, his office, like, write any of these policies and send them to Congress. And this was in the day where the, you know, president's staff would have, like, hundreds of people and each member of Congress would have, like, one person, like, answering letters. Uh, so he basically, like, he does, he releases this big plan that does absolutely nothing to make it happen where, you know, like FDR, like, you know, during the new deal, mm -hmm. the height of the new deal era, you know, he'd travel the States and, you know, lobby uh, against, you know, senators and members of Congress that were voting no on new deal legislation to put uh, pressure on them where, it, you know, <laughs> Truman <laughs> releases this big plan he has no intention of doing it, even though like he has actual power to make it happen. So, I mean, you can have all the plans in the world, but like who gives a shit if you're not doing anything to make it happen? It means nothing. Yeah. And I think the thing, too, right, is to understand. I mean, it's so hard from our perspective to see this, but, you know, part of the reason he's supporting these things, you know, publicly, right, is public facing self-supporting these is they're all incredibly popular, uh, you know. Yeah. I remember I had a history teacher that made us read through the 1952 Republican platform for their convention. And it's fucking hysterical. Like you read through it and it talks about like, you know, the inalienable right of workers to form unions being absolutely critical to democracy. Wow. <laughs> shit, right. I mean, you know, the kind of stuff that they didn't fucking believe, but you know, these ideas, you know, the labor movement was so large you know, left ideas were so popular, you you couldn't just have a frontal assault on them, right? You know, yeah. you had to you had to at least say the words, even if you didn't mean them. Just put it on the platform, then do nothing about it. Which yeah. I guess our the Democratic Party now can't even do that. But. Yeah, they won't even give you the platform anymore. Yeah. But you know, uh, yeah. So we end up kind of pulling up to this really important event in the history of American labor, which is the passing of the Taft-Hartley Act in 1947. Right. And um, so maybe maybe give us a little bit about that if you can. Well, so like the lead up to this is that, you know, Truman, Truman, like, well, not Truman, but the Democratic Party eats shit in the midterms uh, in 1946. Uh, so the Democratic majorities are wiped out by January, you know, 1947 or whatever. Um, uh, and that's, and that is like a referendum on Truman, like his, yeah. his, his popularity is a lot lower, even though like he busted the strikes, but, um, you know, people, you know, he was getting hit from uh, the right, he was getting hit from the left, like nobody mm -hmm. was really like happy with the way he handled the, you know, strike situation, because he was trying to please everyone, like he didn't mm -hmm. want to be seen as anti-labor but he also <laughs> didn't like the strikes yeah um so yeah well he was stuck in the devil's bargain that the democratic party is right of trying to represent both workers and capitalists yeah and you know and it's like you're gonna have to choose at some point also i mean just a hilarious moment of democratic politics right of um you know refusing you know making a bold promise that you refuse to like do anything about because well i'm gonna give it lip service because all of our base supports it but i don't really actually want to do it eating shit in the midterms afterwards because you didn't do it and yep. then going mm, better move to the right better better look in the, <laughs> take a long look in the mirror get a lot more racist <laughs> yeah <laughs> like just such a such a democrat move so for people who think these things are new <laughs> nothing new but um yeah and so 
and we're building to the Taft-Hartley Act, which is a amendment to the Wagner Act. Uh, and basically, whereas the Wagner Act gives people the right to organize, Taft-Hartley is the first broadside against it that basically says, uh, let's put a bunch of stipulations on that right to organize. <laughs> All right. The number one and most important one being, uh, let's create this concept called the right to work which is the right of workers to refuse to allow unions to organize, right? You know, to opt out of the union, essentially a poison pill for union organizing. Um, You know, so Taft-Hartley goes through, what what ends up happening is during this sort of debate over Taft-Hartley and Truman's sort of part in it. Well, I know uh, Truman Truman vetoes uh, Taft-Hartley, but the interesting thing about that is like, who cares? You know, they overrode the veto. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it at... passes with overwhelming majorities in the House and Senate with, of course, shit tons of Democrats voting, voting yeah, for it. Yeah, the majority right? of Democrats are <laughs> yeah. voting for it, I believe. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. it's it's it overwhelmingly goes through. And, it, and if you look at uh, Truman's cabinet, like everybody in Truman's cabinet, the people, you know, he handpicked are all for him uh, just not not vetoing Taft-Hartley. Mm-hmm. Like, let it go through. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, just let it pass through. But again, this is such a Democrat brain move. He knows that the veto is going to be overridden, right? So he knows this is a fait accompli, Taft-Hartley's happening. But maybe I can maintain some of my support <laughs> with labor by vetoing it. You know? Yeah. I mean... Just, Which Labour hates him, by the way. Like Hillman, yeah. who said, "Like, oh, Truman would be my second choice." He now, like, yeah, he he wrote some letter saying he just like despises Truman and he'll never forgive him for this. And you know, all yeah, that kind of shit. yeah. I mean, it's 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 a really disastrous, uh, uh, you know, act that ends up getting passed. Uh, one of the things that was in it, that I believe, gets struck from the original, but is reinserted, and I think 1956 is that uh, in order to like have negotiating rights as a labor leader, right? So if you're going to be on a negotiating committee, you have to sign a loyalty oath pledging that you're not a communist. Yes, yes, yeah, that was part of it. Yeah, and and to be fair, I mean, this is a a war that's happening within the unions themselves where a right-wing leadership is essentially killing the unions, right? By, I mean, they start by demanding loyalty oaths and then they just start expelling these mass expellations of members they deem to be too communist to be in the union, right? Uh, well, yeah. And this was when, like, all the best organizers in the unions were mm-hmm. communists. And the New Dealers didn't necessarily, you know, like the communists. But they were like, hey, these people are really committed. They get fucking results. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I mean, they were do- they were the ones doing all the on-the-ground work. And, you know, one of the big things that was happening at the time was there was a massive uh, Southern organizing drive being done by the CIO in particular uh, in Southern states where they, you know, they were making some inroads and things like that. And uh, one, I mean, several historians have, you know, said that, look, we don't have like a smoking gun, but there's a lot of evidence that the AFL, some of the conservative AFL-CIO membership was brought in on the Taft-Hartley agreement by basically saying, you kill the Southern organizing drive and we will, you know, uh, make sure that the Northern unions are protected in this act, uh, which is exactly what fucking happened. But um, the other part of it is that the, you know, both the AFL and the CIO purged all the fucking leadership from the Southern organizing drive. So there's a famous story of the CIO organizing a tobacco factory 
and South Carolina. And then uh, basically two years, I think it was that same year, sending another group down to essentially break the union. <laughs> they told all the white workers that the black workers were communists and they had to, they had to stand up against it by leaving the union and they broke the union the same year they organized it. So, you know, it's, it's some really uh, crazy shit. Uh, the AFL-CIO also works to break the world, the World Trade Union Federation League, which is this like uh, international trade union league between the United States and European unions. And the AFL-CIO breaks from it. Oh, wow. uh, it's it's really disgusting. Um, it basically this is the absolute peak of the union movement, and it dies every day from this point on. Uh, if you want to know when yeah. the, when the union movement died, Taff Hartley's a good time, a good sort of marker. But uh, these yeah. times, the Cold War anti-communism ran through it. Just disgusting. Um, yeah, good times. But I, I guess the, the TLDR on this with Truman is like, you know, Truman vetoes Taft Hartley, but like he sets the stage for it happening. Mm-hmm. Like the only time he really uses yeah. the bully pulpit is just to rip into labor that they were being greedy and that he was going to draft them into the army. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's a classic, uh, you know, just for the, just for show no vote. Right. You know, it's sort of like yeah. when you know that a bill is going to pass overwhelmingly in the Senate, but your constituents are against it. So you like, you know, cast a no vote, even though we're like close to, you know, passing or not passing your vote might change right it's it's for show you know sure, yeah one, one like things... voting against the supreme court nominee or something like that yeah. yeah yeah the supreme court you get a lot of the the for show no votes you know they sort of decide what the case is going to be and then you know everybody breaks in the direction that they think improves their <laughs> you know yeah. uh, uh is going to improve their image or brand in the case of certain branded court nominees who are no longer with us um so we see the sort of roots of like the end of the American labor movement just happen right in the Truman administration. I mean, some very consequential things. So going back to the sort of convention, if we could like, look, you know, big, big picture, like what the fuck happened in the 44 convention? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I don't, I don't necessarily have like all the answers on that, but, uh, you know, the party bosses wanted to protect their own power. They wanted to look uh, after, you know, their own people. That was definitely a big deal. Um, FDR, like, uh, you know, needed the the party bosses to win. I mean, at Mm -hmm. least a little bit. I mean, he won, I think, by seven and a half points in this 44 election versus winning Mm -hmm. by 10 points in 1940 with Wallace, you know, mm-hmm. previously, but like, I don't know, you know, there, there is some concern trolling going on there by the party bosses, but, uh, you know, you thought he needed the party bosses to win. That's definitely a part of it. Yeah. Um, and the party bosses wanted, uh, you know, a VP who they would have control over. And that was not going to be Wallace. So they, they knew they could control, you know, have some measure of control over Truman. Yeah, and I mean, I and I think it's it's sort of depicted a lot in um, modern uh, sort of retellings of the forty four convention. And mainly, I'm thinking of if you watch the Oliver Stone American History fucking series or whatever that you watch on Netflix. This happens, I think, in the first or second episode of it, and 
you know, this this idea they call it a coup, the coup in 1944, which I think is on one level correct, right? Like obviously the people work to undermine what was the yeah. popular sentiment. But the other thing I think it kind of gets is a little bit wrong about what's happening, which is that, you know, a bunch of individuals got together and changed history by putting one guy in. Exactly, nothing, yeah. Right? Whereas the coup was already underway, right? Like the, you know, business essentially refusing to work and, you know, to do anything for the war effort when FDR essentially laid himself completely out on this idea of we're going to war. Uh, The fact that they controlled industry fucked them. There's not, even if FDR did care about that shit, which I'm not convinced he really did, like they fucked them. Like there's nothing he could do. They controlled industry and he didn't. So he was going to have to make deals with them. Right. Um, and I mean, FDR, again, like FDR yeah. sending Wallace to Siberia. I mean, there are, there are forces pitching on FDR, like not just the, the party bosses. And I don't know, like personally, I think like the reality, you know, the theory that like, you know, boomers kind of like to do that utopian theory where like everything would have been different if Kennedy mm-hmm. had won or Kennedy yeah. had not gotten shot or yeah. everything would have been different if Wallace had, had won. Um, I mean, the reality is that, like, um, you know, Wallace was not going to win. There were two, like, there was capital, you know, pushing mm-hmm. against it. You know, there were party bosses, you know, pushing against it, like, protecting their own necks. Like, he was, he was not going to win. So, I mean, like, you know, you can think about it, but um, it just wasn't going to happen. And I'm not just saying that because my great grandfather took part in sandbagging him either. Although <laughs> maybe that was an influence. I don't know. <laughs> well, no, you just you just knew your great grandfather knew what you know. They he not on his watch. No, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, it's it's the kind of thing I used to kind of, uh, you know, I, I try not to like harp on it with people too much who are doing the Bernie stuff. Um, but I mean, that was my position on Bernie from the very beginning too. Is that like he'll never be allowed to be the nominee. Like it, it doesn't matter what you do, <laughs> like outside of nuking half the fucking Democratic establishment and all of capital in America, like you're fucking out of luck. Right. Because I mean, it's too much, right. it's too much pushing against it. Now, I don't I don't like to I didn't like to say it at the time too much because, you know, I'm trying to people are doing good things. So I'm trying to. Well, and people like Greg stuff, and myself have yeah. deluded yeah. ourselves into thinking we could win well, and good things were possible. Gr- Greg was the main one. I, Greg was the main one I harassed on this. And now yeah. that I see how thoroughly crushed he is in my role in doing that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I feel about it. Maybe I should just keep my mouth shut. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I mean, I think so. Peter Kuznick, who is the historian that like Oliver Stone uses for his thing. I just watched today, actually, on the on the real news network they had an interview with him about this exact thing the 44 convention and you know even though we haven't talked about the foreign policy stuff and we'll talk about that in another podcast for those listening but uh he has this quote at the end where they're like oh so what what's the takeaway and he's like oh you know if henry wallace had got you know had gotten the vp he would have been president and then he said quote then there definitely would not we we definitely would not have dropped the bomb and there definitely would not have been a cold war and I just think this is fantasy. <laughs> this is fantasy land. Yeah. I mean, like, just looking, I mean, just looking at the cabinet, like, I don't know, like, you know, Burns, a secretary of state, like, I don't know. I I have a hard time thinking Wallace would have been able to, like, handpick all his own people, you know, the Senate yeah. would have, like, blocked his nominees. Um, I think, you know, it's possible, like, if, 
in chance in you know fantasy world you know wallace did become president like uh he would have done some things differently like uh i we we can get into that on the next policy on, on the next uh podcast yeah. like you know re- regarding like dropping the atomic bomb i i think wallace personally would have been against dropping it but um yeah uh Wallace definitely would have had some actual like ideological beliefs around labor. Uh, I would have have to have thought like, you know, mm-hmm. he, he wouldn't have threatened to draft people into the army, creating the environment for Taft Hartley. But, um, yeah. you know, it's just a thought exercise. You know, it didn't happen. It wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And when I think, too, it's this idea, too, that uh, individuals and their individual opinions form these key you know sort of elements and points of history whereas you know in a country the size of the united states i mean we're talking about forces much larger than that uh you know while truman's sort of behavior towards labor really made it easier to get taff hartley through the thing is taff hartley was written by the chamber of commerce and the national association of manufacturers for decades now they have been building this campaign against uh against the new deal and against labor and it was you know one of the most sophisticated sort of pr operations you know ever sort of unleashed on the american public and i just you know uh what would wallace do maybe delay the inevitable by a year a year or two you know yeah it's hard. It, it it's hard when you when you take a, a actual look at the forces arrayed against them to think that this was going to be uh, a huge thing. But it was something that business would have had to deal with, right? And they certainly didn't fucking want to. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Well, shit. That's fucking depressing. Um. <laughs> so, listeners, we are going to definitely talk. I know you're thinking. You guys are talking about Truman get elected. You're not talking about dropping the bomb. You're not talking about uh, the Korean War or the start of Vietnam or anything like that. Uh, Justin, we already talked about this. You're amenable to coming back on to have another a little part two where we discuss this. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, yeah, we're two, two hours in, but uh, only halfway done. Yeah. Well, uh, if only uh, listeners could see the notes in front of us. Yeah. <laughs> um, You know, it it seemed like such an easy thing when uh, we first talked about this. The 44 convention. How bad could that be? (laughs) Um, uh, Is there anything that you want to plug or anything like that before we sign off? Oh, yeah, that's a yeah, that's a good thing to bring up. Um, Oh, yeah, I'm transitioning off, uh, you know, 1940s to uh, current time. Got to get my brain (laughs) in the the right frame of mind. yeah, I mean, I would just say get involved in uh, Seattle DSA. Um, you know, there, there's no local, you know, party bosses here. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's a, it's a, it's a little different of a, a time period. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, we're, we're doing stuff, uh, you know, working, uh, you know, with the, the, the guidance of DCRIM. Uh, we're putting on uh, town halls uh, regarding, you know, defunding the Seattle Police Department. Uh, we just put on, uh, with Decrim and others, a rally for, uh, you know, divest, uh, you know, calling on the Seattle Foundation to stop funding the police foundation. So a lot of good stuff going on. Um, we are uh, also starting uh, to do events because uh, we had just endorsed uh, 43rd 
uh, legislative district candidate Sheree Lascelles. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, stuff is happening in the lead up to this uh, general election. Very nice. And yeah, and I, and I want to stress too, when I, uh, I'm not trying to be completely cynical when I say, uh, you know, no way Bernie was ever going to be president. No way that Wallace could do anything about this. So don't worry about it. It's that you're not going to win at the boss's game, which is why you have to play the workers game, which is, you know, doing the on the ground organizing and stuff that you guys are doing. Right. You know, politics aren't pointless. It's just putting your hopes in a you know single Democratic candidate. At this point. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. And also just like be honest with people, yeah, yeah. you know, like yeah. if we promise too much and we have no chance of getting from point A to point B and no plan to get from point A to point B, then we're just grifting people. And yeah. we don't want to do that. We want to be honest. Yeah. You want to be honest and you want to. And that means also acknowledging, you know, despite, uh, you know, sometimes they're more cynical instincts that, you uh, even if you believe, like myself, that there was no chance Bernie was ever going to be a candidate, it does not mean that it is not important then to campaign for him anyways and do the fight anyways, because you're raising political consciousness. You're getting people involved in the practice of exactly, going out yeah. and talking to their neighbors, you know, getting people to you know, realize that talking about politics is okay. <laughs> And that they should that they should do it and that they should want to do it and that they should, you know, not just want something better, but demand something better. And that's that is good. It yeah. would be nice to win once in a while, though. Yeah, it would be nice. Maybe, to win maybe it. just once. Well, you know, rock and roller cola wars. I just can't take it anymore. <laughs> Play the flag. It.